0: From Public Radio International, this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, November 12th. I'm Marco Werman. Even after resigning as CIA chief, David Petraeus has lots of supporters defending his work, But some wonder if they were taken in by the myth surrounding Petraeus, the general.
1: Painting him as a superhuman has its consequences in moments like this.
0: And
2: later, a disabled British veteran works quietly to help others wounded in battle. I think there is a real balance to be struck between being visible and being seen to whinge. And I think we wouldn't want to step over the line into whinging. That's Ahead on The World.
3: Our eyes, the World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World New details continue to emerge about the investigation that led to the resignation of David Petraeus as CIA chief. FBI agents had reportedly known since last summer about the extramarital affair between Petraeus and biographer Paula Broadwell. But that information was not shared with the White House at the time because there was no evidence that the affair compromised security or that a crime had been committed. The scandal, though, represents a huge fall from grace for David Petraeus. He was credited with helping to bring the war in Iraq under control with the so-called surge back in 2007 and 2008. He later got good reviews for his command in Afghanistan as well, before going to the CIA. Spencer Ackerman is a senior writer at Wired who covered Petraeus, and he says tough questions about the general's command were not always asked.
1: In particular, the coverage around Petraeus during the surge in in 2007 and 2008 was almost uniformly positive. There was some critical reporting, indeed, but but a lot of it sort of melted away in the public eye, and, you know, you had the, sort of the apotheosis of Petraeus during his, his September 2007 testimony to Congress, and this was sort of something the Bush administration wanted to cultivate. They wanted someone who had such a sterling reputation to be the the face of the Iraq war during that period. So
0: do any of the revelations about Petraeus' affair, uh, about your own sense that his greatness as a soldier and a general was due in part to a subtle but successful media blitz, how much of all of that now colors his actual ability as a general, a leader, and as someone who is now credited with turning the tide in Iraq?
1: It's going to be difficult to disentangle. Nothing in his personal life, you know, when it comes to this affair, reflects on his military career. Uh, The the affair appears to to have occurred after he had retired from the Army. The reason why I wrote my piece was because it seemed that uh, there needed to be some stock taken journalistically about the degree to which you know, harder questions about strategy, about the two wars in general that Petraeus had commanded had gotten sort of swept under the rug while focusing on, you know, the the mystique, the myth of this, you know, somewhat superhuman figure Petraeus. And also painting him as a superhuman has its consequences in moments like this. The consequences that he doesn't uphold a kind of enormous outsized standard of probity that, you know, probably in reality few of us could have.
0: And is that because of the kind of very turbocharged media machine that was built up around him? I mean, is that why we have this such a great difficulty in disentangling those different strands today?
1: I think there are two different levels of responsibility. One is the you know, the staff around Petraeus did, you know, seek to build him up as this larger than life figure. And then secondly, there's the responsibility of journalists to to penetrate through that.
0: You talk about, you know, this interview that you got with uh, General Petraeus uh, when you were embedded in Mosul. I mean, I mean, basically, you were allowed to interview him as long as you went on this long, very tough run together. What did that kind of convivial sort of interview yield for you and for him?
1: I couldn't complete the entire run, I have to confess to you. I was I was way too out of shape for that. And Petraeus seemed to really enjoy the fact that he could simultaneously lead an exercise class while fending off and entertaining some questions from a journalist about about policy and strategy. And, you know, I have to confess that, you know, had a kind of subtle effect on me. There really is a cautionary tale in, in getting too close uh, to the people that you cover. And it's, it's a difficult thing.
0: Probably too early to ask this question. But right now, knowing what you know, Spencer, how much do you think the human foibles of the man actually put national security uh, in doubt?
1: We need to see if, in fact, the general exposed any classified information to Paula Broadwell. We found just now that she you know, gave a, a speech at the University of Denver on October 26th in which she appears to reveal some uh, at least sensitive or unknown details about the CIA activity in Benghazi. That seems just very surprising that a private citizen would know or would reveal that. While it seems right now that the FBI has concluded there wasn't such a breach of national security, there seems to be a lot more to this story that'll, that'll come out in the coming days. I think Petraeus is going to come back, you know, the Washington wise men tend to do so. And Petraeus had, you know, such a sterling career that it seems that after a period of due self-reflection and, and, you know, healing with his family, that we'll see him again on the national stage. A lot of that really will depend on what kind of, you know, jeopardy, if any, there, there was for national security in this instance.
0: Spencer Ackerman, a senior writer at Wired. His most recent piece is titled How I Was Drawn into the Cult of David Petraeus. Spencer, thanks a lot. Thanks so much for having me. Many in America's foreign policy community still have a positive view of David Petraeus and his legacy.
4: Obviously, uh, Dave Petraeus is a fantastic and accomplished uh, American hero.
0: Michael O'Hanlon is a senior fellow in foreign policy studies at the Brookings Institution. He's known Petraeus for decades, and recently he's been working with Petraeus as a member of the CIA's External Advisory Board. O'Hanlon says he was impressed with Petraeus's tenure at Langley.
4: You know, admittedly, he's my longstanding friend. I've known him for 25 years since graduate school, and it's worth saying that up front, just to be clear. But but I also think that, uh, first of all, the uh, continued prosecution of the war on terror has achieved some big results in the last 14 months. They didn't begin under his stewardship, but they certainly continued, at the same time that I think he was judicious in not overdoing it. And, of course, people are worried about uh, the use of new means of... um, Uh, application of force and interrogation methods and, you know, uh, incarceration methods and all the debates of the last dozen years or so. And I think uh, he was a very thoughtful, although quiet, participant in those debates, as he had to be in the job he held. Um, He was learning fast and doing very good things on issues ranging from cyber war to the rise of China to the ongoing relationships with uh, Russia. Uh, to other parts of the world as well. He was, I mean, he's just an amazing intellect and a, a huge loss for the country, of course. But the good news is that if there's any place in town that has a lot of brilliant people, even if they're not necessarily of quite the level or fame of David Petraeus, uh, it, it may be the CIA.
0: As you know from your proximity to David Petraeus, he was as much a political animal as a military one. And America has a tradition of successful generals becoming president. Uh, before this business, did, did you see Petraeus as a serious contender for the presidency?
4: No. No, I think that uh, David Petraeus always uh, said publicly and always told uh, his friends privately that he had no interest in the job. And uh, in addition to uh, taking him at his word, especially when I heard it a dozen times or more, uh, I would also, and, and that always because somebody prompted him, not because he just volunteered this, because that would be suspicious if he had. But um, in addition to that, that fact, I never had any reason to think that that he felt this was his comparative strength, that he felt it was his comparative advantage, or that he had a particularly clear vision on domestic politics and issues of what he would do with the presidency. And so. Uh, Those of us who wanted him to consider running for president uh, always hoped that we could persuade him by uh, convincing him that, let's say, for example, on the budget deal, um, if it still wasn't solved in 2016, if the country's fiscal situation was still a mess in 2016, that maybe he could help rise above the fray. That's the sort of argument that some of us wanted to make to him. Hmm. Um, not, not that anybody thought he would have or should have or could have run in 2012, but looking ahead to 2016. Uh, so, uh, you know, but that was not something he was interested in hearing or ever contemplated. And um, so I think his categorical rejections can be taken at face value.
0: Well, maybe not head of state, but our previous guest uh, indicated that uh, Washington hasn't seen the last of David Petraeus. Do you think he could come back from this in any way?
4: Well, I certainly hope and pray that, yes, he will. I think... Um, David Petraeus is an amazing American uh, who made a big mistake, uh, but also saved countless lives, often at very uh, severe risk to his own. Um, and obviously, um, you know, uh, what he accomplished remains and stands for itself. And uh, the accomplishments um, in Iraq and the broader Central Command region and Afghanistan uh, and elsewhere are considerable. And I think that, um, you know, it's not the moment to speculate about specifics because the Petraeus' need to go through some healing and the country needs to deal with this news and we need to be able to put it in some broader perspective. But the short answer is yes, I think there are plenty of things he could still do, and, and I hope he will.
0: Michael O'Hanlon of the Brookings Institution, thank you.
4: Thank you very much.
0: There's long been concern that the conflict in Syria could spill over into neighboring countries. Turkey and Lebanon have seen some of that spillover, and now so has Israel. Today, Syrian mortar shells landed in the Israeli-occupied Golan Heights. The Israeli army says it fired back and scored direct hits on the Syrian artillery units involved. The world's Matthew Bell is in Jerusalem. Matthew, what's going on? Is this, in fact, Syria's spillover?
5: It is, absolutely. It's not the first time that it's happened, but it is the first time. Going back all the way to 1973, when Israel and Syria signed a ceasefire agreement, that the two sides have shot at each other across this this ceasefire line um, israel and syria have technically been at war for decades but the truth is marco is that border has been very very quiet for all these years so uh, there's a big question about whether bashar al-assad the president in syria is trying to provoke israel mm. that would be a real game changer here and i think it would vindicate a real final act of desperation on his part. Um, At that point, we just don't know uh, whether that's the case or not.
0: So do these Israeli reactions and and
5: the rhetoric indicate that there's a danger of Israel getting sucked into the Syrian conflict now? I do think, Marco, the truth is is that the Israelis absolutely do not want to get, get drawn into that deadly mess that's going on across the border. Right.
0: Now, while this is all going on, Israel is also dealing with rockets being fired from
5: Gaza into southern Israel. What's the latest there? That's right, Marco. Things started on Saturday when an Israeli jeep that was apparently operating inside the security fence was hit by an anti-tank missile. Uh, Four Israeli soldiers were injured. The Israeli army responded with shelling. Six Palestinians have been killed so far, two militants and four civilians. The Israelis conducted more airstrikes. The rockets continued today. Uh, One thing that's contributing to this is that Israel is in election season. In particular, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is a politician who staked his reputation on his national security credentials. So he himself is under increasing pressure to live up to that reputation as somebody who who will do what it takes to keep Israel safe. Uh, And there are a lot of questions right now about what to do in Gaza.
0: Are you saying that uh, politically it
5: would be a good thing for the Israeli government to go full bore on Gaza? Well, there are a lot of risks, of course. The Middle East in 2012 is a different place than when Israel attacked Gaza in 2008. There are questions about Egypt. How would Egypt respond to an Israeli attack. Mm. Uh, The Israelis have to be wondering also about the international reaction. The Europeans have already told the Israelis and the Palestinians in Gaza to stop the violence. Finally, there's Washington. The Obama administration says it supports Israel's right to defend itself, but it's also shown no enthusiasm for more war in the Middle East. What does the Israeli public seem to want in in relation to, to Gaza? Uh, Some people say the the Israeli military should go in and and solve this thing with force. You've got other Israelis who are, are clearly concerned about the implications of that. It's a big question. Now in the Israeli media, there's talk about perhaps bringing back the policy of targeted assassinations. And that is when Israel killed Palestinian militant leaders. And they're even talking now about going after Hamas leaders themselves. There's talk about intensifying an air campaign against militant groups and then going all the way up where you've got some officials uh, calling for a full-on a ground incursion, a, a real invasion of Gaza again.
0: The world's Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Marco. Still ahead, a house that's just trashy, but it's not
3: a sty on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World Today we observe Veterans Day. It's a reminder of our nation's debt to those who've served in the military and those who are serving even as we speak. We also want to remember how the holiday came to be observed at this time of year. The day itself, which was yesterday, November 11th, marks the anniversary of the end of World War I. Mitchell Yockelson is a historian at the National Archives in Washington. Let's just recall, Mitchell, the First World War's enormous toll nine million soldiers dead, 21 million wounded. What did U.S. President Woodrow Wilson have in mind when he first proclaimed Armistice Day, the precursor to Veterans Day 1919?
6: I think a lot of it had to do with commemorating the fact that the United States did fight in this war. And as you mentioned, the high casualty rates, there were about 53,000 American soldiers who died in combat on the battlefields of the Western Front, which was in France and Belgium. And another 50,000 died from disease such as the influenza. And it was very important to President Wilson to make sure that the American participation in this conflict, which he uh, would call the war to end all wars, that the Americans were recognized for this effort.
0: You know, I was in London last week and was struck by the degree to which even the young current generation seems connected to that history that happened 100 years ago. You know, they're buying poppies. Uh, TV documentaries remind the Brits of, of the Great War. By contrast here, Veterans Day for many, though surely not any veterans, just seems like another banking holiday. Is the Great War forgotten here in the U.S.?
6: It is, and it's interesting you point out about being in Europe. I've been to London many times, and you go into a chain bookstore there, you'll see a huge... Uh, collection of World War I books in their history section. If you go to the United States and go into what few chain bookstores exist here, you might find a dozen or so books. I, I think the problem, if, if it is a problem, is that when the troops came back in 1919 for overseas, a lot of them didn't talk about it, and they kind of wanted to move forward. But when they were really ready to start discussing the First World War, all of a sudden we got into the late 1930s, and then all of a sudden 1941 and were admired in another greater war mm. and i think in that sense world war one kind of became eclipsed and then as we've gone through history we look at our great conflicts certainly world war Two is is considered you know a, enormous and we study that a lot more and then also bookending that is the civil war so this, so the first world war kind of gets caught in the middle and and forgotten as you say
0: when did Armistice Day become Veterans Day, and do you think that was good branding as far as historical memory goes?
6: It became um, Veterans Day in eighteen—I'm sorry, 1954. Uh, President Dwight D. Eisenhower uh, helped pass that through Congress, and, and I think it was a—it was a good idea because, again, Armistice Day it had kind of been forgotten at this point, mm-hmm. and the idea to encompass all veterans on this day is is important in my mind.
0: So when Veterans Day rolls around, what do you find yourself kind of reflecting on? Is it the horrific uh, battles of World War I, or are you thinking about today's U.S. war vets who are struggling in many ways to readjust?
6: Well, I never served in the military, but I've had the pleasure of knowing many veterans through my work at the National Archives, and I also teach um, part-time at the U.S. Naval Academy, so I get to meet the future veterans of America. And for me, it's a time to reflect on those individuals who are now serving and served in the past. My dad was a World War II veteran. And just to look back and say, you know, these are people that came forward, whether they were drafted or whether they enlisted, and they were willing to put on a uniform and serve for our country. And that's something that I really appreciate and I hope we'll never take for granted.
0: Mitchell Yockelson is a historian at the National Archives in Washington. Mitchell, thanks a lot.
6: All right, good. Thank you.
0: British troops have stood beside American forces on battlefields across Europe, Africa, and Asia. So on this Veterans Day holiday, we want to introduce you to retired Colonel David Richmond. He's a 25-year British veteran who served with infantry units in Bosnia, Iraq, and most recently
2: Afghanistan, where he was seriously wounded. Yeah, it was a a gunshot wound um, in through the back of my right thigh, out through the front, uh, and it removed um, ten well between the bullet and the initial immediate surgery, ten centimeters of bone. So, well, they very nearly took it off at the time, um, but then left for the choice: we can try and rebuild this, or we can, or we can take it off. The chance we might lose it anyway. So we went for the rebuild. Hence, it took four years pretty much to get back to this 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 stage.
0: Now that Colonel Richmond is fully recovered, he relies on his experience as a wounded veteran in his current job. He works with a British charity called Help for Heroes. He sees to it that wounded, injured, and sick veterans get practical support. Richmond says getting help for British veterans is easier now than it was just
2: a few years ago. I, I think there was a period of time, certainly in the early 2000s, around Iraq time, where you know, due to our troubles with the IRA and terrorism at home, we, we'd almost withdrawn behind the wire as servicemen. We weren't seen in uniform much. And actually, if you were seen around the streets of the UK in uniform going about your domestic business, people looked at you sometimes if you had two heads and I think that's shifted and I think it's partly due to the efforts of the charity world, the health for for Heroes particularly, which pricked the public conscience at a very opportune moment. There's been a sort of outpouring of support for servicemen which very cleverly has been separated from what perhaps we ask them to go and do. So support for the people even if some of our population have reservations about the cause. Compared to veterans groups in the u s British veterans still keep
0: a relatively low profile. Colonel Richmond thinks that 's partly due to the culture over
2: there. I think that 's the british way though, and it's not it 's just a different way it 's not right or wrong it 's just a different way of doing it, but we 're certainly more visible than we ever have been before, more vocal, and I think there's a greater degree of understanding and support for that population. I think there is a real balance to be struck though between um, being visible being vocal about what's needed to support them and the sacrifices they've made and being seen to whinge. And I think we wouldn't want to step over the line into whinging. Whinging, that's British
0: for whining, and Richmond doesn't want any sentimentality either when it comes to acknowledging Britain's debt to its veterans.
2: Yeah, I mean, I i, I should probably emphasize, I, I don't see whinging. It's not happening. But I think the risk is you, you push this too far. The sen- sentimentalism is a very good way of putting it. But I I think we, we, as a community, you join up, you serve, you do it voluntarily. Nobody's forced you into it. You do it knowing the risks. You never think it's going to happen to you. And if you did, you probably wouldn't do it in the first place. But when it does, there is a duty on the nation, the services, the government, the country, to look after its returning veterans who've suffered, suffered wounds. Maybe not visible wounds, but there is a duty there for the nation. And it needs to fulfill it. And as long as it's being fulfilled and the guys are being properly supported and the sacrifices they've made being properly understood, I think the nation's doing its beauty. And I think Britain probably in the previous 20, 30 years didn't do that very well, but is starting to do it much, much better. That was retired Colonel David Richmond, a
0: 25-year British military veteran, now helping other veterans in the UK get the support they need and the respect they've earned. Several months ago, we dedicated an entire broadcast to U.S. veterans of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and their stories about coming home. Listen and download that special edition podcast at theworld.org return. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, the Dutch woman who joined Colombia's FARC rebels and is now part of their negotiating team and later building a house entirely out of trash.
7: What we're doing is actually thinking, what are the small items that get thrown away on maybe a daily, weekly, or monthly basis? Because there's
3: piles of that stuff. Those stories ahead on The World. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups, such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm
0: Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. More turmoil today at the BBC. The head of news and her deputy temporarily stepped down, and that's just one day after the BBC's Director General, George Entwistle, resigned. The venerable British broadcaster is dealing with the fallout from two scandals. Both involve sex abuse allegations and flawed journalistic decisions. First, there was a scandal over Jimmy Savile, a revered BBC personality who was alleged to have abused hundreds of children. He died last year. The BBC is under fire for dumping an investigative report into the Savile allegations. Now, the second scandal involves a decision to air another report on the BBC program Newsnight. That report wrongly implicated a retired conservative politician in child sex abuse. The BBC now admits it made serious editorial mistakes on that front. But the controversies have cast a lingering dark cloud over the news organization. I felt it last week when I was in London reporting from the BBC's headquarters Sure, people there were following the U.S. election, but many people, and certainly at the BBC, were consumed with what's been going on right under their roof. It's been preoccupying people here in our newsroom in Boston as well, like the world's Patrick Cox, who grew
8: up in the U.K. First things first. Well, you just heard it. The world is a co-production of three organisations, one of which is the BBC. So a BBC scandal is also a scandal for us. Now, I've never worked directly for the BBC, but my connection to the Beeb is decades long and quite intimate. This was early childhood for me. And then, early adulthood.
2: And I wish to complain about this parrot what I purchased not half an hour ago from this very boutique. Oh, yes, the Norwegian Blue, what's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it. It's dead, that's what's wrong with it.
8: <laughs> Growing up with a broadcaster like that made me very fond of it. And I was happy to pay an annual licence fee, as all Brits do, to fund the BBC. As for the news, I trusted it. There were, of course, times when I found a programme pointless or a piece of news biased. I never liked Jimmy Savile's shows. But at the end of each weekday, I felt the need to watch Newsnight. It was a bit like Ted Koppel's Nightline. Smart, unflinchingly courageous in the face of authority, trustworthy. That's why so many British people now feel so betrayed. You can hear it in the voice of this man interviewed at a village hall gathering.
7: It must be a
2: national institution you can feel proud of. But the way they've behaved recently
8: is certainly not conducive to even people wanting to pay their licence fee. It's almost criminal the way they've behaved. What the BBC still has on its side, and this is something that many Brits don't realise, is its reputation abroad. La BBC en crise après la diffusion d'un reportage accusant à tort en responsable politique de pédophilie.
9: BBC's news director Helen Boden or deputy news director George
8: Entwistle these are all BBC programmes in other languages reporting today on the BBC's troubles. As strange as it may seem inside Britain. People in Nigeria or Myanmar don't really care about scandals involving Jimmy Savile or a former advisor to Margaret Thatcher. I realised that a few years ago when I was reporting in Bangladesh. Millions of Bangladeshis listened to BBC news programmes. One person after another told me why. The BBC's was the only news that they could trust during the country's War of Independence. You hear similar stories in many, many other places. At a time when news organisations are rarely trusted, the BBC still is in most of the world. The work that's done by the BBC is unquestionably. It's the greatest broadcasting organisation in the world, and remains that. What it has is a crisis of management of its own making. This is veteran BBC anchor David Dimbleby. He's far from alone in blaming the BBC's problems on what he calls its self-perpetuating bureaucracy. Bureaucrats, when they're asked to cut back on the scale of the BBC and its costs, immediately increase the number of managers to deal with the cuts. The trouble is that out of that you don't get... Good director generals. You get people who've played the system carefully, one against the other, and they just don't have the stomach for what's needed. What they do instead, says Dimbleby, is justify their own existence with unnecessary reports written in language that deliberately sidesteps responsibility. The management speak gobbledygook. Any editor, any head of a department spends their lives filling in forms, answer questions about things that are really not necessary, using a language that's so arcane about platforms and genres. And other ways of placing more value on how a news story is consumed and less on what it actually says. Understandably, today, things may be a bit seat-of-the-pants in the BBC's corridors of power. But if ever there were an example of the loss of respect for the BBC, it came in an interview today. It was on Sky News, a generally less-trusted private news organisation. The BBC's Interim Director-General Tim Davey was asked where the buck stopped when it came to news accuracy. Davy didn't really answer that. And then he tried to shut the interview down.
7: Yeah. Anyway, I will go now because I've got a lot to do. Okay. Um, the BBC is taking action. That's what we're going to do. I've got a job and I'm going to get on with it. Thank okay. you, Dermot.
8: Well, are more heads going to roll, Mr Davy. By now, Davy's walking away from the camera. Thank you. Well, there we are, uh, Tim Davey, uh, ending his uh, interview there with uh, Sky News. Bet he wouldn't do that to the BBC. Tim Davey there. Now, Sky News is a fierce competitor... But for those who think of the BBC as arrogant, as out of touch, and now as untrustworthy, that live TV moment may have spoken volumes. For The World, I'm Patrick Cox. In Spain, an estimated 350,000
0: families have been evicted from their homes since the country's property bubble burst five years ago. And until today, it seemed likely the numbers would continue to climb as more and more people lose their jobs. But now the main banking association in Spain has announced it will put a two-year freeze on evictions for the country's most vulnerable. The world's Jerry
10: Haddon has this update. In cities across Spain today, protesters banged on pots and pans in front of offices of the ruling popular party. They want Spain's draconian eviction law changed. In Spain, you can't just hand over your house keys to the bank if you can't make your mortgage. Under the country's 1909 law, your debt follows you and your descendants until it's paid off, even if eviction leaves you homeless. That nearly happened to Rocio Guerrero, an unemployed cook and mother of a four-year-old boy. She's been out of work for three years, her boyfriend for nearly as long.
11: Porque tenemos el piso alquilado para a la hipoteca.
10: The only way we avoided getting thrown out on the street by the bank was to rent out our apartment, she says. Then we moved in with my in-laws. Eviction protests like these have been going on for years now, and they've been largely ignored by politicians. But that's changed because of two things that happened last week. In the northern Spanish town of Baracaldo, a woman, 53-year-old Amaya Egaña, jumped four stories to her death just as authorities were arriving to evict her. It was the third eviction-related suicide this year. The judge on the scene, Juan Carlos Mediavilla, threw up his hands and declared this has got to stop. We can't have situations like this, he told reporters. We need to have the current law changed. People in economic crisis are being driven to tragic ends. The change in the law has to happen very quickly so that we judges can apply the new rules. In theory, the new rules would give judges discretion to let people stay in their homes. They might offer a temporary reprieve for struggling mortgage holders or the chance to renegotiate the monthly payments... Or they lose the deed but can stay on as renters. Spain's federal government, which has been in emergency meetings since the weekend, hasn't outlined its proposal yet. Deputy Prime Minister Soraya de Sáenz de Santa María Lidor, told reporters on Sunday that the government is studying how to make mortgage contracts fairer. Protester Rocia Guerrero says she's a living example of unfair banking practices.
2: Que ya de portica, hipoteca, cuando se concedió,
10: When we signed our mortgage, she says, we were paying more than we could afford. They should never have offered it to us. When they changed directors at the bank, he looked at our mortgage and told us that, based on our earnings, the bank never should have lent us so much money. During Spain's real estate boom of the early 2000s, bankers often got commissions for selling mortgages, tempting some to sign up folks who ultimately couldn't pay, similar to what happened in the U.S. Now, as the Spanish government tries to fast-track new mortgage legislation, Struggling homeowners suddenly find allies everywhere. The main association of judges is speaking out in their defense, and Spain's police union says it will offer legal support to any officer who refuses to participate in an eviction. But in the meantime, a Spanish banking association announced today it would put a moratorium on evictions of the most vulnerable, for example, the gravely ill or families with kids. That may be because the European court in Luxembourg has ruled that Spain's eviction law doesn't go far enough in protecting consumers. The ruling is not binding, but the European Union could take action, obliging Spain to enact reforms. Still protesters are wary of government promises to help mortgage holders. One woman at today's protest said any change must be retroactive, offering relief to the hundreds of thousands of Spaniards who've already lost their homes. Banks say they'll resist that. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. The first clue for today's geo-quiz
0: is a load of rubbish. We're looking for a British city where a cool recycling project is about to get underway. A team of architects and recycling experts is planning to build a house entirely out of trash. The building site is in a city on the south coast of England in East Sussex, the city's seafront bars and restaurants, not to mention nudist beaches, are all just an hour's train ride away from London. We're back with the name of that English city, plus more on the House of Rubbish project later in the program. This week in Cuba, peace talks will begin in earnest between the government of Colombia and the leftist rebel group, the FARC. And among the FARC leaders in attendance, one stands out. Her name is Tanya Neymar, and she's not from Colombia or even South America. She's Dutch, and her story is pretty fascinating. It's said that her impressive physical strength and intellect helped to propel her through the rebels' ranks. Miriam Wells is a writer based in Medellin, Colombia, who's familiar with how Neymar came to join the FARC.
11: She came originally as a language student in 1998. She had the opportunity to teach English in Colombia, And she says that very quickly after arriving, she was shocked by the vast levels of inequality and poverty she saw around her. Colombia was and remains one of the most unequal countries in terms of the difference between rich and poor. And she grew to sympathize with what the FARC was doing. She said she spent a lot of time with a teacher, a fellow teacher at the school who was a communist, as it later turned out, he was a member of the FARC himself. And she says that by the time she returned to Holland, she was consumed by the fever of revolution and she felt that the revolution would take place one day and she wanted to be a part of it.
0: And is she, was she, a naive foreigner?
11: I don't think it would be fair to describe her as naive. She's a very intelligent young woman, she speaks four different languages. It's been claimed that she was brainwashed, that she was, you know, forcibly recruited without really knowing what she was doing. But, you know, I don't think that's true. She returned to Holland and spent a year or two as a socialist activist back there. She had a lot of time to think about what she was doing, and she she planned her return, you know. It wasn't Mm. a sudden thing.
0: Right, so she returns to Bogota in 2002. Uh, What kind of things did she actually do with the FARC? I mean, was she kind of a common foot soldier, or did they give her bigger jobs to carry out?
11: She was part of Bogota's urban militia. She started out with sort of surveillance tasks, with intelligence, with finding out, for instance, when transport workers would be going in and out of terminals. The typical kind of activities in the FARC Bogtar at that time were attacks on on public transport or on businesses. And then right before she went into the jungle, she was involved in the planning and execution of a big attack on public transport. And as the attack was about to be carried out, various people were arrested and the others had to flee, which is why Tanya then ended up going into the jungle. Mm. But she is wanted for terrorism, this national arrest warrant that was put out by the U.S., that arrest warrant has been lifted so that she can travel to Cuba for the talks.
0: Now, Neymar's mother tried several times in vain to get her daughter back. What exactly did she do and why didn't it work?
11: Yeah, I mean, the story is so sad. The issue of the family is the saddest part of this story because she hasn't seen them or really talked to them since she went into the jungle 10 years ago. The mother traveled to Colombia, as did the sister, a couple of times, trying to get the daughter back. In 2005, the mother was granted a meeting in the jungle encampment that her daughter was living in. But she left with the knowledge that her daughter would never leave the rebels, she said. And she also, a few years after that, traveled to Colombia again to take part in a documentary. And in that, you actually see her flying over the jungle in an army helicopter, shouting through a loudspeaker, begging her daughter to flee. She puts out messages on a radio frequency known to be listened to by the FARC, again, appealing to her daughter to leave the rebels. They've become shunned in Holland where their daughter is seen, you know, as this terrorist. Mm. It's just been really, really sad for them.
0: Now, Tanya Nehmeyer early on spoke of the political affinity she felt for the FARC with their communist ideals. But those ideals, as a lot of people know, kind of went out the window as they tried to just fuel their movement through drug revenues and tried to overthrow the Colombian government. And she sensed that kind of betrayal of those values. If she has that sense of doubt about the FARC, how much do you think she'll actually feel committed to any positive outcome in these peace talks in Cuba?
11: Well, she says that she's fully committed to their ideals. There was the famous publication of some diaries of hers that were discovered in an abandoned jungle encampment in 2007, where indeed she did talk about disillusionment. She said that life with the FARC was like a prison. It would be worth it if I knew what we were fighting for, but I just don't know what we're fighting for anymore. Mm. She later said her words had been manipulated and she released a video saying that she was and would remain a proud member of the FARC. And again, in a press conference that she's given about a week ago in Cuba, she's again stated full commitment to their ideals. She says that they are fighting for social justice, that that's all they've ever fought for. They deny that they are just a drug trafficking gang. You know, she says that she has great hopes for the peace process.
0: And these upcoming talks, how long are they supposed to run for? Are they kind of open-ended?
11: Well, that's one of the interesting elements. President Juan Manuel Santos has said that if there's no solution by next June then they'll abandon the talks, which to many people just seems like an absurdly short amount of time, given that previous talks have lasted for years. And, you know, if you're talking about a conflict that's gone on for more than 50 years, can you really expect it to be resolved in a matter of months?
0: Miriam Wells, based in Medellin, Colombia, telling us about the story of Dutch FARC rebel Tanya Neymar. Thank you. Thank you. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Next week, a construction crew at the University of Brighton in England will begin work on a house that sounds like a riddle, and the riddle might go like this. This building will be new, but it will contain virtually nothing new at all. You see, it's being made almost entirely out of waste material, rubbish from homes and discarded items from other building sites. The English city of Brighton, by the way, is the answer to our geo-quiz today. The project is meant to show that using trash as building material is good for the environment and can reduce the cost of construction. Ari Daniel Shapiro of our partner program, Nova, got a preview of what's planned. He produced this audio postcard from the future site of the Brighton Waste House.
7: The site's just ahead of us up here, about 20 steps. My name's Duncan Baker Brown, and I'm the architect for the Waste House.
9: Hi, I'm Kat Fletcher. I run a local uh, online reuse organisation. Right now in Brighton, there's many hundreds of building projects going on. All those projects have materials on site, which they are going to get rid of because they haven't needed to use them or there's a bit left over. So I'm going to be procuring for free timber, bricks, blocks, cement, sand, mortar, and we're going to start building the house.
7: So, and now here we are. It's vacant plot. This is the actual site for the Waste House. Where we are at the moment is we've just got the concrete foundations, but this will be the front door. Looking straight in front of you will be the staircase. That staircase could well be made out of a special material which is actually recycled paper, but it looks like a lovely limestone. We're not just getting industrial construction waste. What we're doing is actually thinking, what are the small items that get thrown away on maybe a daily, weekly or monthly basis? Because there's piles of that stuff. The wall here, this is unknown at the moment, this could be uh, old videotapes stacked or uh, it could even be that we have some sort of mesh with a lot of toothbrushes behind it or something.
9: There's probably a million toothbrushes sitting in Brighton and you know they currently get thrown in the bin and they get burnt and buried if you're a little bit outside of Brighton it might go to landfill. We might be able to reprocess them, melt them down into tiles for the interior fill the hollow recycled timber cassettes that build the wall of the house so I'm trying to find a way of incorporating ordinary consumer goods that are going to waste into the build.
7: The bottom line is we can build in a very low impact way you get what's called low ecological footprint so it should be really gorgeous and it'd be a nice place to work and study in.
0: Duncan Baker-Brown, architect and lecturer at the University of Brighton in England, and Kat Fletcher with the group Freegal UK. Visit the site where the Brighton Waste House will be built and see an artistic rendering of the building. We've got a slideshow at theworld.org. And our partners at NOVA have a lot more about green technologies at pbs.org slash NOVA. The Amazing, that's what this band from Sweden calls itself. On their debut album, Gentle Stream, you'll hear echoes of 1960s California pop rock and 70s British folk rock. Well, joining me in the studio are Christopher Gunrup and Raina Fiske of the group The Amazing. Uh, and let me just say, first of all, that I've really been digging uh, the album Gentle Stream, this, this new album that you've come out with. Back home in Sweden, your band has been called a supergroup. I know you've got a very well-respected jazz drummer. Did you conceive of yourselves as a creme de la creme of Swedish pop music or rock? Or what, what was kind of the idea?
12: No, no, that's, I mean, that's
0: something that the press would use. But both of you also come from a kind of well-respected group, a band called
12: Dungen. Yeah, Rain right? is from Dungen, yeah. 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 But we're, f- f- uh, first and foremost, friends. That's uh-huh. how we why we're together. Of course, it is nice that they all play so very good. They're so good at their instruments. Well, I mean, sometimes the press does
0: uh, hook into an idea, but often it, there there's some evidence of truth behind it. So, I mean, how do you feed off each other in terms of musicianship? Well... This is Reina. I don't know maybe there's a certain flow to the, to the playing too because we we share a lot of the same ideas I guess and tastes maybe too mm. and that's what we do. We just play well l- let's do that We'll hear the title track right now. it's called Gentle Stream, and then we'll talk a bit more about it. the title track to uh, the band The Amazing's album Gentle Stream. Rhino, you mentioned uh, something a moment ago, flow, the flow of the music. And I, I when I first played that song, I and it ended, I looked at my laptop and I realized it was almost 8 minutes in length, and yet it flew by. And it struck me that you know somewhere between the kind of expansive spatial quality you have in pop music there must be some kind of tension do you have to fight that tension or is it just really about you know friends playing together and just getting out there musically well I mean like many other songs I think this was based on I mean you have you have an idea for a song and then we just sort of jam in the studio we we I remember we found the, the right tempo I remember the, okay the drum's not right we have to find something different and then the song just I don't know took off in a way
12: I mean that's the way I like it that, that, that flow I need a, need to find the groove to be able to, if not dance at least tap your foot. and when you find the groove, it's just the, the flow is there. It just I let people do as they please. You, you
0: want to kind of create a, a, a spirit to let improvisation happen in the studio. it sounds like Yes, yeah, yes
12: because that's to me, this is playing with these guys is great for many reasons, but when we record. We never, ever rehearse a song, I just present it to them and then we find that groove and when everyone likes what they're doing, we record it.
0: Can I just say that both you guys, uh, Christopher and Reiner, you have this kind of soft-spoken modesty that just seems so stereotypically Scandinavian Hmm. in contrast with this epic sound on your album. What's going on there? You just save it all for the studio and for the stage? No, I mean, music, music <laughs> is
12: who we want to be, but this is how we are. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of an Olympic feel to it sometimes right. when you listen
0: to it. Christopher Gunrup and Raina Fiska of the Swedish band The Amazing, their debut album is called Gentle Stream. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. We'll be back tomorrow.
3: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today's story, reported in conjunction with NOVA, was made possible by the Candida Fund. The world is supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. The Carnegie Corporation, the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs by the Annenberg Foundation, and by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. Macfound.org.